Hello, and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ahir Shah. The sanctions and financial measures taken against Russia following Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine have once again shone a light on Britain's role in the world of shady global finance, where seemingly anything can be done if the price is right. The news is full of discussion of ill-gotten gains washed in the laundromat of London grad, but how did all of this come about? Investigative journalist Oliver Bullough, best-selling author of Moneyland, explores questions like these in his new book, Butler to the World, the story of how Britain came to serve the world's oligarchs, gangsters and kleptocrats. Oliver, welcome to the bunker. Thanks very much for having me. So, Oliver, when did this idea come to you and how did the metaphor of butlering come about? <laughs> yeah, it's quite entertaining story in a way, or entertaining to me. I, I mean, I worked in Russia in the former Soviet Union for many years. And even after I moved back to the UK, I kept visiting and writing about what was happening over there. And obviously, what I was writing about were, you know, the war in Chechnya, human rights abuses, oil companies being expropriated, all the kind of daily stories. And corruption was just this sort of background hum, you know, which was you know, occasionally rose to a fever pitch if a you know, policeman came and stole some money off me or, or whatever. And I only really started thinking seriously about corruption, grand corruption, kleptocracy and all that after the revolution in Ukraine in 2014. And then I was writing about how the elite there had laundered its money and moved its money. And it became increasingly clear to me that Britain had this very important pivotal role really as a hub for moving money from, you know, kleptocratic regimes. And I, so I wrote a fair bit about that. So, you know, I kind of gained a, a reputation among a very small group of kleptocracy watchers that if you came to the UK from elsewhere, I was a person to talk to, to get leads. And, and which is why this guy, Andrew, who was a US academic, dropped me a line. He was looking into Chinese, specifically Chinese money laundering. And he asked me out for a cup of coffee because he basically, he was wanting to raid my contact book. He wanted to know who to talk to in London to find out what Britain was doing about Chinese money laundering. In the same way that if I go to Washington, I will you know, hit up people I know there and ask, who should I talk to at the Department of Justice or the prosecutor's office or in the White House or whatever to find out what's going on? And he was, you know, he, he had his notebook and he was planning to write down all the names. And he kept asking me, you know, who should I talk to in the Home Office? And I'm like, mm, there isn't, isn't really anyone, actually. And it went on like this. And he kept it was a bit like that bit in Alibaba and the 40 Thieves when Alibaba's, I think his brother, is, keeps trying out different passwords to try and open the magic cave and none of them work. And he kept trying different combinations of words to try and extract from me the crucial information of who was doing something about Chinese money laundering in the UK. And, and eventually I kind of had to stop him and just said, look, you've got to understand we don't do that here. You know, the US does it. You're, you're sort of policeman of the world, but but we don't do that. And then I was trying to come up with a term, you know, what are we? If, if the US is the policeman, what are we? And I was like, well, I said, well we're, we're like the butler. You know, we're the butler to the world. We don't stop people doing things. We help people do things. The more I thought about it, the more I realised that this actually explained a lot about Britain's role in helping kleptocrats. Because if you look at what Vladimir Putin and his friends are good at, they're good at, you know, invading sovereign nations, killing people, jailing political opponents, stealing oil companies, rigging elections. You know, they're important skills for, for taking over a very large country, but they're not very helpful for integrating you to the global financial system you know, moving your money and, and, and investing it in real estate yachts and all the other goodies and bling that rich people like to buy. So essentially, they have the, you know, the hard skills of corruption, but we provide them with, you know, corruption services, you know, a bit like Jeeves, we sort of stand in the corner of the room. And if they need a problem solved, they can call us over and, and we solve it for them. Right, we're the criminals, personal gentlemen. Yeah, exactly, which is a pretty uncomfortable place to be, to be honest. One of the things that, that that's quite difficult 
when researching this issue is you have to keep fighting against essentially the image of Britain that we all have in our heads. You know, because I think we've been very good as a country at presenting this image that we're you know, the country of Harry Potter, the country of Downton Abbey. We have a, you know, a, an absurd sense of humour and we export pop music and films around the world and all that. And yet all the time while that's going on, at the same time, there is this deeply ingrained service industry that helps anyone with money do anything. Whoever they are, if they've got money, we'll take that money and help them solve their problems. I want to pick up on something you said about the the image of Britain that we have in our heads. And now, of course, the image of Britain that people have in their heads differs wildly from person to person. And I was thinking about, you know, myself being a person who all four of my grandparents were born subjects of the British Empire, which creates a very different sense of your, your view of Britain and its history. What interested me in what you're writing was how much of this is sort of built up around the end of empire. And as the phrase went, when we lost an empire and were finding a role. And so I wondered if you could talk a bit about that, about the transition from empire to the position that we're in now. That's absolutely right. I think this butlering business really begins at the end of empire. I mean, if you, if you think about what Britain used to be, we used to be the biggest bully on the block. We didn't need to sell our services to other bullies. We were the bully. You know, when you look at what oligarchs are doing or what Putin's doing, that's what we used to do. And we used to go around the world. And if someone in a country dared to you know, disagree with us or sign our trade deals, we'd fire shells at their capital city until they changed their mind, which they normally did quite quickly. We went into butlering when we couldn't afford to be the biggest bully on the block anymore. It's a little bit like an aristocrat who's gone bust. An aristocrat, he used to have the big house and the, the pied-à-terre in town, and he used to be in town for the season and go to Royal Ascot and wear the right clothes and say the right things and know the right people. He can't afford to do any of those things anymore. He's had to sell the house and all that, but he still knows how to do them. So he's selling his services to another aristocrat. He's become, you know, the provisor of aristocratic services rather than a natural aristocrat. That's what Britain became. And what's really interesting about the end of the empire and the beginning of the butlering industry is it happens at the same moment that the Suez crisis, which is, you know, obviously this iconic moment of British national humiliation, it's always, you know, cited as the low point of diplomatic prestige, when Britain tried to act independently of the United States, along with France to, to retain control over the, the, the Suez Canal after the Egyptians had had the temerity to nationalise a company that was on their own territory in exactly the same way as Britain and France had nationalised companies in their own country. I mean, it was like, a you know, Egypt was swimming very firmly in the historical mainstream, but how very dare they because they were foreign. And so we tried to stop them. The Americans then said no. And at that point, you know, the British government finances were in a very shaky state after the Second World War. And without American assistance, you know, we were facing, you know, a, a serious devaluation of the pound, you know, a real seizing up of the financial system. Everything was looking very bad indeed. And the government took emergency measures to freeze the use of the pound for sort of financing trade in the way that the pound had always been used to finance trade. That was what the British Empire was. And the British Empire is, in a way, not really the British Empire at all. It was the city of London's empire. You know, the, the, the companies that went and conquered India or, or traded slaves out of West Africa and so on. These were private companies. They weren't, you know, government ventures. And so, yeah, the city of London froze up because the government prevented the use of sterling to finance trade. And the city of London needed, in order to stay in business, they needed to find a different mechanism that they could use to finance trade. And that's when this idea, which had been kicking around for a couple of years by that point, 
of using not pounds in London, but dollars went mainstream. And that, it sounds like a really small thing. And it sounds like nothing now. Everyone knows that you can trade dollars or pounds or euros or any currency you like in London. But it was revolutionary at the time in that what it did was if you use dollars in London, then you were freed of all the restrictions imposed on the use of dollars by the Federal Reserve and the American government in general, which were onerous at the time. And also you were freed of all the restrictions imposed by the British government because those restrictions applied only to pounds. So what the City of London discovered when they started using dollars instead of pounds, and they didn't do this willingly, it wasn't planned, it was an emergency response to the Suez crisis, is that suddenly all the restrictions that governments had placed on the movement of money after World War II to try and secure democratic primacy over wealth in, in this sort of Bretton Woods system, which, which was you know, going at the time, all of those restrictions fell away. And suddenly wealth was set free and the owners of wealth could do whatever they liked. And that was incredibly profitable because you know, this wasn't, it wasn't possible to do this anywhere else. The city of London had been moribund before this invention. But this moment, the creation of what was called the euro dollar market, the offshore dollar market, the creation of the concept of offshore, which previously was a maritime term referring to what happened on the high seas, the creation of offshore as a concept is the moment when Britain reinvents itself as a servicer to oligarchs rather than an oligarch itself as the butler to the world. And it's incredibly consequential because, you know, as a result of opening the floodgates to allowing unregulated finance, other countries had to try and instead of if they didn't want to see their entire financial industry relocate to the city of London, they had to match us, they had to deregulate as well. You know, we blame Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan for setting finance free. But actually, they were just recognising what had already happened in the city of London in the 1950s and 60s. You know, that market, the euro dollar market, is the fixed point from which the owners of wealth managed to destroy democratic control over wealth. I remember a few years ago, Helen Thompson, who I interviewed on this podcast for her new book, Disorder, talking to me about Aitchison's 1962 statement that Britain was a country who'd lost an empire and not yet found a role, and commenting on how interesting it was that he said that seven years after the Midland Bank started trading in euro dollars, and that that was exactly the role. Exactly. I mean, that's a, it's, it's an extraordinary moment, that, in a way, because, you know, Dean Aitchison, though he wasn't in government at the time, remained the sort of, you know, maven of US foreign policy gurus if that isn't a horrendous mixture of metaphors. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, and he knew what was going on. And yet at that time, even though by that point, the euro dollar market had, had swelled to, you know, it was sort of changing maybe five, six, seven billion dollars a year was trading through it. It was by that point, a big market. He didn't know what was happening. And one of the reasons why this has not featured in a lot of historical discussion of the 20th century is because it, it really challenges comprehension what they invented. And, and I, I was trying to come up with a metaphor to describe what the bankers managed to create. And the thing that occurred to me was a story I once heard about Ireland during the Troubles when there was apparently, and I can't even remember where I read this, and it's really frustrating that I can't remember. If anyone listening to this can remember and knows where it comes from, please let me know that there was a farmer who had land on both sides of the border, both in the Republic and in the North. And he built himself a petrol tank that went from one side to the other. And because, you know, prices varied and taxes varied in the two on the two halves of the island, he would just buy petrol on the side it was cheap and take it out on the side it was expensive and make a profit. And what was really important was for him, he didn't care where petrol was more expensive or cheaper. He made a profit either way. And this is the point with once you created this ability for money to flow seamlessly between Britain and America, it didn't matter where restrictions were tougher or weaker the bankers made a profit either way. 
We think of offshore, you know, as you say, it started as this sort of accounting trick in the city of London. But I guess now what we imagine is much more literally offshore, like these tropical islands where, you know, a thousand companies exist within one building. And you write extensively about the British Virgin Islands, for example. And what really interested me was the, the contingency of particularly just the English language as a soft power vehicle, right? Like there were places that were sort of territories of the Netherlands that could have done the same role and were doing the same role, but American firms wanted to use the English language. And I think that this ties into what you're saying about us as the land of Harry Potter and everything. So I, I think wonder if you could talk a bit more about just the role of British soft power over the last few decades in making this a mainstream thing. I mean, that's an absolutely crucial point that offshore now, when we talk about it, we often talk about how it's misused by Russian oligarchs or, you know, the Chinese state or, or you know, Venezuelan oil barons or whatever. But offshore as a creation was a joint venture at the very beginning between Britain and America. It was the transfusion of American currency and economic vitality into the system created by the British Empire, which had become moribund, but still existed. So you had the channels, you know, the arteries and veins of the British Empire still existed. It's just there was no sterling left to flow down them. So by transfusing dollars into those channels, you essentially reinvented the network of the British Empire as an offshore empire. So places like the British Virgin Islands or the Cayman Islands, which are absolutely central to the development of and the furthering of offshore as a concept to make it become far more powerful and potent, were a joint venture between you know, the last pink bits, the last few colonies that had been too poor or too distant or too remote or too small to become independent at the towards the end of the British Empire, you know, when their lawyers in those places were discovered by lawyers in the United States who realised that they could essentially write legislation, send it down to these territories, they would, you know, in, they were desperate. For and in many cases, literally did, right? Literally we're asked to, yeah. yeah. So, you know, so, I mean, in the British Virgin Islands, that, you know, the the creation of the international business company, the shell company that really transformed everything in terms of, you know, offshore money laundering was written as a joint venture by, you know, government office, or government officer of the BVI, local lawyers and New York lawyers who did it all together. You can't see where one of their work started and one of them stopped. They did it together in complete harmony. And, you know, the, the US role in creating the British offshore empire is crucial. This is an Anglo-American invention. But then other places realised how amazingly convenient it was, and Britain realised how profitable it was to work for them. So though the BVI is created to help Americans dodge taxes, it really gets going when drug smugglers realise that they can move their shell companies there from Panama, because Panama was a bit dodgy, and they could put them in the BVI, and everyone thought that was fine. And then after UK said it was going to hand Hong Kong back to China, a lot of wealthy Hong Kong business people were looking for an offshore place to put their companies, and they were like, oh, we can put them in the BVI. So it begins as this you know, I think you could call it naughty tax dodging, you know, not not evil, naughty use of offshore to, to save companies from high taxes. And taxes were at the time very high. But then those same mechanisms used by tax dodgers then were discovered by kleptocrats and mafiosi and drug smugglers and used to move what you might call evil money. And the same thing has happened really with Russian money laundering. The same British shell companies that are used to disguise and have been used to disguise literally hundreds of billions of euros and dollars moving out of Russia over the last 20 years. Those same shell companies are also used by private funds in the city of London. And the reason our government has been so reluctant to do anything about them is they're concerned 
that if they regulate them, those funds will relocate to Luxembourg or Delaware. To close, I wanted to ask you a few questions about the situation that we're in now and perhaps what may happen going forward. Now, you write about how a few years ago you were called upon to give evidence in Parliament about the issue of money laundering and illicit finance in Britain. And you said that you didn't quite give the answer that you wanted to. So I'll give you, I'll give you a chance for you to give the answer that you wanted to here. I'll set you up with how big is the problem and can it be quantified? <laughs> How big is the problem and can it be quantified? It's immeasurable and no. <laughs> I mean, I was asked, in particularly in that committee hearing, I was asked by Priti Patel MP, now Home Secretary, that question. And I waffled, I think, about the size of the problem. Britain has buried Russian wealth. We were talking specifically about Russian wealth then. Has buried the wealth of the oligarchs so deeply into the fabric of our economy and our society that it cannot be identified as something other than just ordinary money. It's like the eggs in the cake. The cake is baked now. Those eggs are no longer eggs. They are cake. And that is something that we're going to have to deal with the consequences of now for many years, if we ever deal with them at all. But it is possible to prevent more. <laughs> this metaphor no longer works. It is possible to prevent more eggs arriving, as it were. And to prevent them being mixed, you know, into our economy any further. And there are relatively simple reforms that could be done to prevent that. Just this week, as I'm talking, Parliament rushed through a measure which is supposed to bring transparency to the owners of offshore property in the UK. So to make it no longer possible to use a offshore company to disguise your ownership of property, which is something oligarchs have done very widely, as have other wealthy people in particularly in London in the South East, but other places too. The bill that they have introduced, it's so urgently as an anti-oligarch measure, it was first proposed in 2016. It's been ready and sitting on a shelf since 2018. It's incredibly frustrating to watch them forcing this through without scrutiny, as if it's, you know, an emergency wartime measure. It's like the government is only printing a map for soldiers to use when the war has already started. But actually, it's worse than that, because the measure which they've introduced is catastrophically flawed with all the ways that our own corporate registry company's house is flawed in that the information provided when you create a company, you have to say who the true owner is, but no one checks that information. So if you want to lie, you can just lie. And there are also many ways of entirely legally avoiding giving that information. If you own a company, for example, with five close relatives, none of you own a sufficiently large share of the company to have to declare who you are. So you can say that no one, no, there is no person who controls that company, even though there quite obviously is. These flaws are known, they are public. And yet the government, in its emergency response to the Ukraine crisis, has created a measure which is as flawed as the company registry, which has already moved hundreds of billions of euros worth of stolen Russian money out of the former Soviet Union into the West. And watching this cluster shambles is incredibly frustrating because, you know, I feel like a small group of us have been making as much noise as we can about this issue for quite some time now. And I've been speaking, you know, at parliamentary select committees. I have spoken privately to the Home Office and the National Crime Agency. They know what the problem is. And yet, apparently out of concern, 
with what really taking action will do for the competitiveness of the City of London, they don't take action. So we really need to confront the fact that we are prioritising our own profits, the fees that we earn as a butler, the commissions we earn as a butler, over the safety, security, and let's face it, right to life of people in Ukraine. Because the Russian regime is enabled and has been enabled for decades by money laundering, by kleptocracy, and they couldn't have done that without our help. And I find that deeply uncomfortable. And if anyone takes any message from Butler to the world, I really hope it will be that the money that is coming here that is helping to buy you know, nice cars for lawyers in London, pay the private school fees for accountants and so on, that money isn't free. You know, it, is, it is coming here to escape other places. And the reason it is often coming here to escape other places is because it's been stolen from people who desperately need it. And it's causing terrible damage in the countries where it came from. And we need to reckon with our role in this. This is the role that Britain found after losing its empire. And I don't think this role we found is any better than the role we had when we were an empire. Um, I think, to be honest, if you look at where the money comes from now, it often comes from the same place as it used to come from when we had an empire. If you look at the, the companies that move it, they're often the same companies that used to move it when we had an empire. And yes, you know, the languages that the people who are stealing it speak is different to perhaps they did when we call them district commissioners and so on. But the actual mechanisms, the money flows, it's pretty much the same. And, you know, perhaps, you know, when we are having our long overdue reckoning with the British Empire, that that reckoning needs to include a long overdue reckoning with our post-imperial role as butler to the world's bullies, not just our role as as being bullies ourselves. So I wanted to finish just by bringing up the phrase that you used near the beginning of the interview where you said, it's money generally. And we're seeing a lot of sanctions and movement. And as a layperson, I see these things and I'm like, oh, okay, that sounds pretty good. That could work and whatnot. But I suppose that the worry is, A, that like unexplained wealth orders over the last few years, we're engaging more in the semblance of doing something without actually doing something. And B, that this has been so targeted under a specific set of circumstances and a horrible set of circumstances that almost the signal that we're giving out is like, as long as you're from one of the other 194 countries or whatever, and you you might be corrupt kleptocrat from anywhere that isn't Russia or Belarus, and we're still open for business for you. It's just this particular case that we're dealing with. So how how big a worry actually is that going forward? It's a huge concern. I mean, if you go just going back in time to the beginning of the Ukraine crisis, 2014, when you know Russia invaded to take Crimea from the Ukrainians and to destabilize the east of the country as a response to a popular uprising in Kiev and the fact that the president, who is a sort of Russia friendly, if not really, you know, Russian as such, had sort of fled to Russia, you know, that was provoked by that rebellion. But why was there that rebellion? That rebellion was overwhelmingly about popular outrage about corruption, mismanagement, misgovernment. And how had he stolen his money? How had he laundered his money? How had he hidden the ownership of money that he and his cronies had stolen via the UK? You know, Britain's role in this crisis is foundational because without our assistance, the kleptocracy that caused it to begin with would not have happened or would not have happened to anything like the degree that it happened. 
The money that was stolen was hidden behind British shell companies. The money that was spent was spent here on, you know, properties. You know, Yanukovych, the former president of Ukraine, hid his ownership of his giant log cabin palace, which is one of the most deranged things I've ever seen on the outskirts of Kiev. He hid that specifically behind a company registered at 29 Harley Street in London. You know, our role is not as the good guy here. We were the mob bankers who helped the mob loot Ukraine. And it was the entire crisis began because of that. So, you know, yes, we can now, you know, scramble to expose the wealth of oligarchs, whether they're from Russia or Ukraine or wherever the next crisis will be. But that's, you know, we're, we're dealing with wealth after it's already entered into the country. You know, we are, you know, we're dealing with enemies after they're already inside our castle. You know, we should be stopping them at the gate. And that requires, you know, a total change of mindset. It requires a proper investment in law enforcement in order to give them the powers and morale and sort of political support they need to check wealth wherever it comes from and whoever owns it. And we are so far away from that. You know, right now, the government's default position is pass another law. And yet, you know, the National Crime Agency or the Met or whoever, they've got plenty of laws. The British laws are pretty good, actually, by international standards. They're, they're pretty good. The issue is that we don't enforce them. It's like we're, we're you know, we're, we're creating great weapons for the soldiers, but we don't have any soldiers, you know, and, and that's not going to do the job. And I don't know, it's a really uncomfortable thought to where is the government complacent and where is it complicit? And I don't like accusing people of being evil. I don't think anyone or very few people actually are evil. Everyone is the hero of their own story. And everyone has, as a rule, good reasons for why they're doing something, even though the reasons only look good to them. But it's it's a very, very poor show, what Britain's been doing for a long time. And, you know, it becomes increasingly difficult to resist the impression that you know, we are not just complacent about the threat posed by foreign wealth. We're actually complicit in the crimes that are, that are, that are taking it. You know, it's obviously we need to be an open economy and we need to be open to, to immigrants of all kinds. But, you know, if you look at the, the difference in the way that, for example, Ukrainian kleptocrats were treated when being given tier one investor visas, these golden visas, which we hear about, compared to how few refugees have been allowed in over the last two weeks, it's just, you know, it just sums the whole problem up, you know. If if people have got money, you know, they're basically greeted at Heathrow with a red carpet. And if they haven't got money, they're told to wait at Calais until maybe we get around to opening an office at some point. It's a pretty shameful state of affairs. And, you know, and this is what I mean by being a butler. You know, we're only prepared to help people who can afford to pay us. Yes, greeted at Heathrow with the red carpet by the butler to the world. Oliver, thank you very much for joining me. You wrote, describing the culture of the Bank of England in the 1950s, chaps don't tell other chaps how to behave. And as a rule, most chaps don't need telling. Sadly, however, some chaps are cads. And as an aside, that uh, seemed like a really distressingly good description of our current prime minister. Oliver, thank you very much for joining me. Oliver's book, Butler to the World, is out now. Do get it. It's it's not fun, but it's very interesting. <laughs> Listeners, thank you for joining us on The Bunker Daily. We'll be back tomorrow with another edition. Do follow us on your favourite podcast app, and you can get every edition of The Bunker early, plus merchandise and more when you support us on Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Daily was presented by Arthur Shah. The producers were Yelena Sofronievich and Jacob Archbold. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. 
Group editor Andrew Harrison, theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.